Welcome to the Insider's Guide to Finance, where we dive into stories from the front lines of financing public and private companies. I host seasoned CEOs, fund managers, bankers, brokers, and business experts who will answer your questions about how to properly engage investors, finance opportunities, and build outstanding success stories. We dig into the educational how-tos and mechanics of structuring good deals. You'll also hear about strokes of luck, tense negotiations, and the pressures of closing, while also getting insights on how to best navigate the public markets. Welcome back to the Insider's Guide to Finance. Today, we're hearing from Rick Rule, now the former president and CEO of Sprott U.S. Holdings. Rick is outspoken to say the least, but seems to consider every word carefully. His entrance into the finance industry is a story worth listening to twice, and the people he learned from can be credited with leading the frontier of the Canadian public venture capital industry. In the first part of our interview, Rick says, I look forward to being useful. I thought at first this was a bit of a dismissive remark, but as you'll hear, Rick's career has been built on doing exactly that, being useful and building value for his clients. There's almost a purity in his approach and how it ties into his libertarian beliefs. When it comes to business building and financing companies, Rick doesn't mince his words. He's very clear on the expectations he has for those who come in pitching him for money. And further to that, he articulates his expectations in a way that is in line with other highly successful people I've interviewed. To draw an analogy, his expectations are major league. But when most people pitch for money, they do it with a minor league understanding of their project and the real potential. Some other great points Rick shares are about capital raising in the early stages of a company. He makes the point that in your early rounds, you should be raising allies and not money. In other words, put that stock in the hands of investors who are capable of being there for the long run and not just gonna turn you out for a quick and easy double. Once again, lots to learn, so enjoy the show. Rick, welcome to the show. Corey, thank you very much for having me on. Yeah, I've been looking forward to this interview as uh, followed your work for some time. You're definitely one who uh, I say perhaps outspoken, some would say. And I'm really looking forward to hearing your thoughts on what companies can do to best manage their investor relationships, as well as manage the market. And I think you bring some really interesting perspective to it. I look forward to being useful. Thank you. <laughs> so where I'd like to start, for those who don't know your background, could you share us a bit of history about yourself and your career in the capital markets? As a very young man, I grew up in Silicon Valley, uh, San Jose, California, to be exact. I came north to Vancouver, to the University of British Columbia in 1970, both because the University of British Columbia had an odd major in natural resource finance, which was unavailable elsewhere in North America, but also because in 1970, you won't be aware of this because of your age, but in 1970, a young American was going to travel. And for some reason, Vancouver seemed more benign than Saigon. Saigon was warmer. Okay. But there was no requirement in Vancouver that I had to shoot people or they tried to shoot me. So for those two reasons, I came north. Does that make uh, you a draft dodger? In truth, it made me a willing draft dodger. What happened actually is that my lottery ticket was so absurdly high that unless the Russians you know, came across the Aleutians and invaded Blaine, I wouldn't have been called. Okay. But I certainly wanted it to be my choice, not their choice. You will notice libertarian tendencies in the way I speak. And I was about 17 when I figured out that my government wanting to send me to Vietnam was not a friendly act. So my, my distrust of government began very early. At any rate, I went to the University of British Columbia, not for any noble purpose at all. I wasn't trying to get an education or anything like that. I was trying to learn how to make some money because I was a young immigrant that had none. And I found through an odd set of circumstances, I had to work my way through school. And I found myself first using my only applicable skill, which was the fact that I had boxed for some years. And I was big, working my way through school as a bouncer. And through an odd series of circumstances, I ended up owning a bar. I won't bore you with that. Okay. The consequence of that is that I found that university got in the way of my education. So I didn't complete the University of British Columbia. I found myself making substantially more money while I was at school than tenured professors did. And given that I wasn't in university for any noble purpose, 
I concluded myself that the university had gotten in the way or was getting in the way of my education. My real education, I think, in business came about as a consequence of owning a bar in downtown Vancouver, which was the meeting place of the nascent Vancouver Stock Exchange. The brokers, the bankers, the promoters, what passed in those days for IR guys, basically failed used car salesmen in those days. <laughs> and being a young, earnest man, trying to figure out how they did what they did and plying them liberally with alcohol, I got an education that probably could not be duplicated at any institution of higher learning in the world. Of course. And that's basically what happened. Is I was very unhappy in the bar business. I didn't like it, which is probably what made me good at it. I wasn't trying to have a good time. I was trying to make my customers have a good time. And as a consequence, I outcompeted other people. But I also set the stage for learning the way that the Vancouver Stock Exchange worked in those days, rather than what they would have shown me at UBC, which was farcically silly. I used the capital from the bar business to begin my career in natural resources in the early 70s. I really want to hear about global resource investments and how you started that, and where you took that and where you started your career. But I'm always fascinated. And if I get the opportunity to hear stories about the early days of the the Vancouver Stock Exchange and some of those characters there. Do you have any stories you could share? Anything that pops to mind? I'm trying to think of who I could tell stories on that is dead so they can't come back at me. Certainly, I learned a lot at the hands of Murray Pezum, the so-called Pez, who you know brought the sort of <laughs> Toronto-style West when he was asked to leave Toronto. Interesting guy, a great storyteller because he was a great believer. People always thought that Murray Pezum was cynical that he didn't believe in anything. And he had some wonderfully cynical phrases, in fact. But the reason that he was so successful is because he was so empathetic. And the stories he told, he believed himself. Now, he had some wonderful quotes, one of which I will share with you, maybe two. At the beginning of the exercise, the promoter has the dream and the public has the money. The broker's job is to rearrange the roles for a fee. Fairly cynical yeah. uh, statement, I think. And in fact, more cynical than Mr. Pezum was. The greatest influence on me is still around. That's Peter Brown. Uh, Peter, Brown who's, Peter Brown, who started Canaccord, was a more frequent customer of mine than he cares to admit. And I was a very earnest young man, so I would ask him questions. He would give me some answers. I would pretend I had some work to do. I'd run in the back. I'd write them down in a spiral notebook, come back, pour him another triple vodka, the so-called Canarim, in those days it was Canarim, not Canaccord, the so-called Canarim water, ask him some more questions, disappear back into the back and write down the answers. And I learned a tremendous amount from Peter. He was very, very generous with his time, very, very generous with knowledge. Peter introduced me to a wonderful guy named Hugh Mogensen, now deceased, who introduced me in turn to Ned Goodman and Seymour Schulich. Okay. That was extremely useful. The other really useful introduction I got at that point in time was Peter Kundal, who was now deceased, a legendary value investor in Vancouver, okay. who took me under his wing and showed me how to substitute arithmetic for narrative. Narrative in Vancouver has always been overly abundant. Arithmetic has been generally sadly lacking. And I would say that the delta between arithmetic and narrative is the way that one makes money in Vancouver. I got my education in arithmetic from Peter Kundal. I think it's fair to say I got my education in narrative from Peter Brown. Huh. This first five or 10 minutes of our interview is so impactful. This is, I love hearing this because I really do believe a strong narrative is what will grab somebody's attention, but we do lack the arithmetic, the fundamentals of deals to carry that through into the long term. And so it's, it's just fascinating to hear you frame this up like this. What an education for you. It was when I think back and, you know, people sort of ask me how I did what I did. I had truly spectacular mentors, Corey. And I'm not sure in retrospect why it was that they chose to spend their time with me. I suspect it was because I had so much enthusiasm. These were older folks that had brains and I was a younger guy who had legs. That's the only thing I can think of because when I look back at the breaks I had, the human breaks, they were really truly incalculable. Hmm. Wow. And so these relationships, these influences, before we jump back into your career and, and starting in, into the capital markets, what were the characteristic traits of these individuals that really stood out to you the most? 
well, among the successful ones, understand that I met a lot of unsuccessful ones too, who I won't burden you with. Okay. The uh, successful ones were innately curious. Peter Brown, Ross Beattie, Robert Friedland, Lucas Lundin, all characterized by relentless curiosity, an interest in any number of subjects. People who are successful also have above average energy. Uh, there is not just a drive, an intellectual drive, but a physical drive. None of those guys could sit still. One of the reasons why I get to meet so many of them in the bar is the only way that they could turn their brains off was poisoning themselves at night. It was the only way they could slow down. I hope none of them resent my saying that hard work certainly was important. I remember people like Brian Ashton, who started Georgia Pacific Securities in Vancouver, would work an eight-hour day being a broker running the firm, and then he would run an eight-hour night courting customers, courting listings, courting brokers, you know, a sort of a 16-hour day, six days a week, you know, really hard work. The other thing I learned, and some people are going to criticize my choice of phrase, but nice guys finish first. I'm not going to suggest to you that every aspect of the people that I'm talking about could be described as charitable towards other people. But none of them were beset by envy. All of them genuinely celebrated the success of other people, even occasionally when that success came at their own expense. All of them became, as soon as they were able, spectacularly philanthropic. Hmm. The idea that you have to be some sort of criminal to get ahead, even in a place as rough as Vancouver was at that point in time, is 180 degrees wrong. The truth is that the biggest attribute that makes an entrepreneur successful is his or her reputation. And not doing dirt, just as easily put as that, not doing dirt, making many, many, many more friends than enemies is the basis of reputation. I think there's a real powerful misnomer that says that to get ahead, you know, you got to screw everybody that comes in sight and that investing and business is a zero sum game. You got to get it for yourself and deprive the others. That's not the way it works at all. You get rich by generating utility for other people. Stop. It's the whole game. Amazing. So these influences, they took you from the bar industry, took you into the capital markets in right. the 1970s, early 80s. Let's go back there. <laughs> Good then bad. I'll explain. I came into the business in the 1970s, which was the halcyon era for natural resources. You weren't around for that narrative, but the big thinkers of the world, the Pierre Elliott Trudeau's, the Club of Rome, Jeremy Rifkin, all those morons, had a sort of a Malthusian view of the world. If you listen to them, and everybody did, our population was going to outstrip markets, not strip our ability to provide for people. We were going to be out of food by the year 2000, 30 million people a year would be starving. The oil price would be $200 a barrel. Copper would be $20 a pound. And in fact, the price justified the narrative for a while. During the decade of the 70s, the copper price increased from, I don't know, 25 cents to a buck and a half. The gold price from $35 to $850. The oil price from, what, three bucks to 30 bucks. And I made a common young man's mistake, making a lot of money and listening to this narrative. I confused a bull market with brains. I thought the fact that I was making all this money while my competitors in conventional capital markets were losing all theirs meant I was smarter than them. But markets, in fact, work. The cure for high prices is always high prices. The cure for low prices is always low prices. And when the market worked at the end of 1981 and commodity prices collapsed, I learned just how smart I was, which is to say not very. I went from being a very wealthy and hubris-ridden young man, it's a fancy word for arrogant and conceited, <laughs> to having a substantial negative net worth. That isn't to say I was at zero, I was sub-zero. I'm proud to this day that when I figured out what I had done to myself, rather than declare bankruptcy, I assembled my most important creditors, formed an informal committee, got them to give me some time, worked it out, and paid back every dime, principal and interest that I owed, which is, I think, those two lessons, the fact that markets work and the fact that if you have borrowed money, you pay it back, mm -hmm. are the foundations of the success that I've enjoyed. The people who went through my creditors, the valley of the shadow of death with me, became, without exception, the foundation of my career, important customers, important mentors, important sources of new business. So I did well by doing good. And that's been a theme in everyone that I have seen. 
It was also useful, the lesson, which is to say that markets work in natural resources because they're capital intensive and they are cyclical. You are either a contrarian or you will become a victim. Those are your only two choices. If you do things in resources when they're popular, you are going to get your ass kicked unless you're just selling narrative, you know, clipping money from morons and driving on to build a fortune. You have to be a contrarian or you are going to be a victim. It's as simple as that. And we can discuss why later in the interview, but it's important that people understand that to begin with. In extractive yeah. industries, they are capital intensive. They are cyclical. You are either a contrarian or you will be a victim. Wow. So I definitely want to get into that and hear more about that. And, and I'd love to hear your thoughts about today's markets, today's environment. There's, you know, some of this stuff is just absolutely unprecedented. But when you had your big run as an early man or a young man there, were you with a firm? And what took you into starting global resource investments? I had a variety of employers early on. I would describe myself as unemployable. But the truth was that I was such a hard worker and I was such a good producer that people hired me anyway. A variety of people hired me. And I had relatively good experiences with them. But I had a restlessness associated with the various platforms that I worked for, not really understanding the nature of my difficulty. In, God, it would have been 1988, I guess. I had spent the early part of the decade of the 70s being a wholesaler, which meant that rather than selling investment products to clients, I sold investment products to brokers. And I came not in every case, but by and large to figure out that I liked the clients more than I liked the brokers. And when the 1987 crash came, it was very clear to me that most of the brokers I knew wouldn't have the jam to call their clients. That is, they were hiding in fetal position in the corner thinking about what they'd done. And I decided that since I wanted to build a retail book and divorce myself from the brokers, that if they wouldn't call their clients, I would. And the mm -hmm. consequence of that is that I became immediately, like within a year, a hugely successful retail stockbroker. Hmm. By 1990, it was apparent to me that the brokerage firm that I worked for didn't regard my customers as customers. They regarded them as distribution. In other words, they regarded the issuer as their customer, not my clients yeah. as customers. And I had a very Sell different point of view. So I formed Global Resource Investments out of self-defense. I decided that I had to have a platform that I could serve my customers in. I didn't do it really because I wanted to, because I abhor things like regulatory and compliance work and the administrative function that comes with owning your own business. I literally did it out of self-defense in that ended up being an extremely good decision for me. But I must say too, fast forwarding, that when I sold global resource investments to Sprott and I eliminated about half of the work that I found distasteful, I was hugely happy about that circumstance. Yeah. Well, and moving into Sprott, I'd love to hear about how that acquisition went for you, because I think no matter how much net worth you have, every acquisition and a movement like that is a major part of your career and your life. Then you spent some 20 years with them. And so- Not, not, 20, not 20, they bought me parenthetically. Okay. They bought my business in 2010, 2011. Oh, pardon me. Okay. And I resigned a week ago. Uh, yes. I am still the largest shareholder of Sprott. I believe I'm the largest private client and I'm on the board of directors. What I'm not is an officer or an employee. Congratulations. Uh, Does that feel thank good? Thank you. Oh, I got to tell you uh, for them too. You know, my, you described it as outspokenness, I think is occasionally inconvenient or embarrassing for Sprott. So I think we're both happy about that part of the divorce or partial divorce by 2009, I guess my business had become successful to the extent that I understood as a founder that I was an impediment to its growth. And I also felt dishonest. My clients hired me to manage money and I was managing a firm that managed money. So probably 50% of my time was devoted to activities that didn't benefit my clients, which felt very dishonest. At the same time, I had been a friend, a competitor, a client, all kinds of relationships with Eric Sprott. He is enough older than me that I viewed him sort of the way a greyhound would view the electric rabbit on a dog track. He was one of the guys I chased. I emulated various aspects of his career and saw how he dealt with the challenges that I was dealing with. And so I'd watched him very closely for 10 years. And Eric replaced himself as CEO of his own business. 
because he wanted to get back to securities analysis and to marketing. He didn't want to run the business because he understood a flaw in his character, which is similar to the flaw in my own character. Despite the fact that he's a CA, he went more towards security analysis than corporate management. And so I cast around to find somebody who I could hire to run my business. And there was a young investment banker in Canada by the name of Peter Groskopf who had started, I forget, he started some, or he was part of a group that started a brokerage firm and sold it to TD. Anyway, a very bright young guy. And I began to talk to him about running my business. And he called me at one point in time and said, we have to terminate discussions. Eric Sprott has hired me to run Sprott. He said, being an old investment banker, or pardon me, a young investment banker, he said, now we could continue the discussions in one set of circumstances, which is to say that the ownership of your firm could change and I could run both. And I thought about it and I thought, you know, the more I think about this, the more sense it makes. Hmm. And so the genesis of the transaction was probably 30 hours. The negotiation was somewhat more torturous. So the transaction didn't take place for several months, but we sort of agreed to agree subject to very, very quickly. Wow. And it was a very good idea. Yeah. Now, you know, you touched on something there and I know we could go so many paths here. But when it comes to the brokerage industry and you having an issue with the firms basically treating your clients as their customers in the sense that they're looking to use them as distribution for, for the issuer's stock, underlying that, I would imagine you have a lot of opinions about the brokerage industry now. And I do. Where I do. we're at. I do you care to share some of those with us? And yeah, well, what's your take? There's an almost irreconcilable difference. On the one hand, as in the corporate finance function, Your job is to raise capital for the issuer as efficiently as you can, which is to say at the highest possible price. Representing your customers, your job is to allocate capital as efficiently as you can, which is to say at the lowest possible price. So it really depends on the constituency within the brokerage firm that you're talking about. From the broker's point of view, they need to understand something that most of them don't, which is to say that the brokerage firm is the bookkeeper. The employer is the customer. And if corporate finance comes up with an idea that doesn't benefit the customer, the sales force needs to say, nope, foo on you. How does that sound? (laughs) They need to say no. They absolutely positively need to say no. And that's difficult. They ostensibly get paid, be it fees or commission by the firm, but the money originates with the customer. And so the sales force really needs to understand where their loyalty is. To the extent that the platform doesn't allow them to serve the customer, they have to go find another platform. Mm. There are plenty of good brokers at BMO, at Canaccord, at Haywood, but don't look to the firm. Look to the broker Hmm. if you're a customer. I see. Yes. As a customer. And can we go down the path of what it is to be an issuer and working with brokers or bankers in raising capital? And for the audience listening about how to properly raise capital through those channels, from your experience, what advice do you have? Well, first of all, you're only as good as your last deal. And if you don't have a last deal, your first deal shouldn't be your own. It should be somebody else's. You should, if you want to become an entrepreneur as an issuer, you should align yourself with a hugely successful existing issuer. If you want to be in the natural resources business, as an example, you should start off in the IR department for Ross Beattie or Bob Quartermain or Lucas Lundin or Robert Friedland, even if you have to do it for free and take out the trash. If you become part of a successful team, you will learn how a successful team operates, but you will also be able to borrow the luster and the credibility of that team until you have the opportunity to achieve that for yourself. If you have the opportunity to take a shortcut, which is to say, cheat somebody in a good market, don't take it because the top of the industry will, if they don't know you, know somebody who knows you. And if you have a reputation as somebody who could cause their reputation to suffer, the smart people in the business will not pick you up. They will not pick you up. Mm -hmm. In terms of specific advice, I need to say that I have been, I mean, I've been involved in financing many different industries. I would describe myself as successful and knowledgeable only in natural resources and financial services because I understand them. So any success that I might have had in other industries was wholly accidental and probably isn't worth repeating. Perhaps I was successful because of my reputation, because of my Rolodex, and because people foolishly 
assumed that the success that I had enjoyed in natural resources would follow me into other endeavors. But the truth is it didn't. Mm. Uh, <laughs> what you learn from the A players, the guys who've really, really, really made money in resources is they understand the business. They're contrarian. They attract to themselves a small pool of loyal, sophisticated investors so that they can raise reasonable amounts of money, albeit on terms that will later appear disadvantageous during down periods of the market. In 2015, 2016, when nobody wanted to be in the gold business, Lucas Landin was buying Fruta del Norte. Mm -hmm. Ross Beatty was forming Equinox. Frank Juster was backing seven or eight entrepreneurs. When it was tough to raise money, it was easy to employ money. When you build the critical mass of a company during a bad market, you can use the, the narrative in a good market and you can raise money at a sub-zero cost of capital and use that to build a company. It's important that issuers understand, particularly young issuers, it's odd that young people are very impatient. When you get to be my age, when you have less time on earth and you should be more impatient, you become much more patient. Hmm. And what you learn is that to build a decent company, a viable company, not even yet a successful company, just a viable company, takes five or six years. That overnight uh, success uh, takes five uh, years. Yeah, yeah. In my case, the overnight success is usually required a decade. When I look back as an example to all of my adventures with Ross Beatty, and I believe there have been 14 now, uh, 14 companies where I have been fortunate enough to participate with Ross and helped Ross, I've had I don't know how many of them were 10 baggers, but a bunch, yep. I mean, a bunch. And in every case, the 10 bagger took five years or six years. And by the way, some of them were substantially better than that. I remember we financed Pan American silver when nobody cared about silver at 50 cents a share with a full warrant. And the stock went in six years to 45 bucks. Mm. But, you know, I throw that to get people interested in what I'm going to say next, probably three times in the period of 50 cents to 45 bucks, the stock fell by 50% or more. So you have to be comfortable enough in your skin and well enough financed that you can take a 50% decline and recognize it for what it is, a company that's going to be bigger and better on sale temporarily. It's difficult to do that if you've owned a stock from 50 cents to $4 and you feel like a genius, it's an eight bagger. And then the stock goes from $4 to $2, which is to say that you have given up 50% of your illusory gain it's very easy for the price action, the negative price action to disabuse you of what was a positive plan and a positive narrative. It's easy too for entrepreneurs, for issuers to fall into the same game. Capital formation is all about constituency building. And there are different constituencies that are important in different stages of the financing. Early on, don't raise money, raise allies. If you award yourself some stock at 10 cents and the market is stupid enough to give you money at 25 cents, first of all, that usually happens in too easy a market. But if it happens in a bad market, don't raise the 25 cent round to raise the money. Raise the 25 cent round around constituencies that are going to help you grow the company. Can it's you important more, that you do that. More the dynamics of that. And you know, don't raise money, raise allies. The dynamics, the mechanics, and who would those be? Well, the best I've ever watched that is Frank Justra. Frank is probably organized for other people. God, a hundred companies. I don't know. If Frank is building a company that is going to be active in Colombia, he might well include in the early rounds, a couple Colombians, a couple people who can tell him and tell his management team, do business with this person. Don't do business with this person. The politics in, is this the sociology and the region that you're going is there. Mm. Certainly, he would seed investors who will come in every subsequent round. Too often among issuers, they want to give the stock at a quarter to their friends and they want to go out to the street at a buck. The people on the street say, where was I at a quarter? Mm -hmm. uh, Justra answered the question. Justra would say, well, you were either there or you refused to be there. At any rate, I meant no disrespect because you may or may not recall, here's my day timer, you got called. <laughs> he has always 
and I'm picking on Frank, but this is common with all people who have been A players, all people who really understood the game, that he would look at a story and think about the likely distribution channels. So if a distribution channel was Canaccord, as an example, he might use stock in the early round to incent some of the biggest customers at Canaccord to become involved. Capital Research in London would stand out. Some of the better producers in Canaccord, when I say better producers, I don't mean the guys who take 25 cent stock and fan it at 60. I mean guys who will help him build a business like Goldcorp or Wheaton Precious. He and others of his ilk were very careful selecting directors, directors not just that would do what they're told, but rather directors who could provide mentorship for the management team he chose and directors that had Rolodexes that could bring other benefits to the company. Directors importantly suited to the task at hand, not just people necessarily who had been successful in mining, but people who had been successful in tasks that were similar to the tasks that confronted the management team of the issuer that he was building. Do you understand where I'm going? Absolutely. With this? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, don't waste that easy paper and don't keep it all for yourself. If you keep it all for yourself, you'll never get rid of it. Yeah. It's, <laughs> you'll it's, never build the company. Frank, well, I would describe as an architect as much as I would as a financier. Yeah. And what I hear is there's far too many people in our junior markets playing checkers when you have people like Justra and those who you work with and yourself playing chess. And what I hear there is early on, use that early stage stock, that seed stock to really start to paper in the people who in the long run, five years out, are going to be massive catalysts kind of thing. In every stretch. I mean, there are some people who can be useful for you right away, but you have to be forward thinking. You have to be thinking in terms of where you're going to go. Hmm. Fascinating. Can we discuss narrative, issuers and narrative? And when you hear a pitch, what do you want to hear? Oh, well, first of all, I want to hear if it's a new issuer, I want to hear who the people are. I want to hear where they were successful and how their success relates to the job. If someone says to me that he has been a success in mining or she has been a success in mining because they operated a producing gold mine in Quebec in two billion year old Archean terrain, and therefore they were a success in mining, if the task at hand is exploration rather than production, and the target is copper gold porphyry in 15 million year old accreted terrain rather than 2 billion year old Archean Proterozoic terrain, and that exploration project is in the Spanish speaking Peruvian Altiplano, I would suggest that the success that that person has enjoyed isn't relevant to the task at hand. Hmm. I want a target that's big. I don't care anymore about a 50 cent stock that goes to 75 cents because most 50 cent stocks go to zero. So I want to have an upside that justifies the risk I'm taking to the downside. Entrepreneurs often fall to the sort of seductive idea that they're going to bootstrap. They're going to build a small mine. They're going to use the free cash flow from that to build. They're going to recreate you know, BHP from bootstraps. And I fell for that when I was young, but it's stupid. The truth is that the skill sets involved in discovering a mine, building a mine, and operating a mine are very different. And all of those skill sets can't fit in one small company with the GNA that's available to those companies. Right. It so just, it's... When guys, you know, take some nothing nowhere project in BC that's had, you know, they twin the one prior drill hole that's worked on a project that's failed out of the three last cycles. I just don't want to know about it. I want to see a project that I think can be, at least in gold equivalent terms, at least a million ounces and can produce 100,000 ounces a year. So scale is important to me. What's most important to me is the conjunction of the project, the people, and the plan. Exploration, or frankly, technology, are intellectual capital businesses, really. The mining business is presented as an asset-intensive business. But the truth is that most projects are holes in the ground, excuses to spend money. The real capital in the business is the intellectual capital. So the first thing that I say is to advance this project, you're going to have to increase the market's knowledge of the project so they can assign it value. You have to identify the most important unanswered question. 
you have to develop a plan based on data, not narrative, to test the question. You have to have a sense of what a yes answer is worth. You have to have a sense of the time frame required to answer that. And you have to have a sense of how much it's going to cost to answer that and where you get the money. So tell me what the most important unanswered question is right now in your project. 80% of the time that I ask that question, the people respond, I've never thought of it that way, hmm. which is actually very useful because then I can throw their presentation away and not waste any more time talking to them. <laughs> you know, it's as though if you're familiar with Vancouver, I don't know where you're based. It's as though somebody's in downtown Vancouver prepared to walk to Whistler, you know, so they got water, boots, all this stuff. And the morons head east, <laughs> you know, they don't have a map. Yeah, uh, it is very, very, very important that you understand the unanswered question. You understand the probability of success, that your thesis is based on truth rather than narrative. And after all that, it's important to me when I look at the resumes of the people involved that I care about what they think the unanswered question is. If they don't have the intellectual capital to correctly identify the unanswered question or to develop a viable plan to test the question, if I don't think that they have the good sense and the honesty when the data comes back negative to pivot, save the rest of the money, I have no interest in playing. There's mm. too many ways to lose money easily to have to work hard to lose money. Rick, what I really appreciate about what you're saying here, and you know, I found this with interviewing Lucas Lundin, I found this with interviewing a number of other execs you know, who they speak and play to a level of sophistication that I think a lot of entrepreneurs fail to bring themselves to. And to your point, if, if you want smart money, capable money coming into the boardroom and pitching your team, you better be able to answer these questions left and right and really speak to it with a sophistication, exactly like when you referenced board members who have experience in a production environment that is completely different geology than what they're pursuing, how relevant is it? Don't come in saying that that's helpful. I mean, it really, it for anyone listening, I think they should be taking away the level of sophistication you want them to be playing at. Well, understand that, I don't know if you're familiar with Pareto's law. 80-20. Yeah, exactly. The dictum, the 80-20 dictum sounds elitist because it is, but it's also true. And the truth is that the 80-20 rule is a bell-shaped curve, which means that 20% of the population base generates 80% of the utility. A different 20% of the population base generates 80% of the aggravation hmm. in any given field. So 20% of the issuers will generate 80% of the wealth. And 20, another 20% of the issuers will generate 80% of the losses. What's really interesting is that the performance dispersal curve, which is what that is, conformably aligns for at least three standard deviations, which is a fancy way of saying 20% of the 20 generate 80% of the 80. So 4% of the population base would generate 65% of the utility. A different 4% of the population base, generally from my point of view, elected politicians, generate 65% of the disutility. Mm. But it extends for at least one more standard deviation, which is to say that eight-tenths of 1% of the population generates about 50% of the wealth generated. That's where the Lucas Lundins, the Ross Beatties, people like that are. As an investor, the most important thing that you can do, and what I wish I would have done for the last 45 years, is identify the best of the best, hang out with them, and don't do anything else. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, do less. The truth is there's probably, I don't know, 1,500, 2,000 listings worldwide that purport to be junior miners, I would argue that 80% are valueless, mm. have no value. Mm. Where to go from here? I would really like to hear your thoughts on, given the market conditions now and what's happened since March of last year, unprecedented, but what's your take? I would imagine as a contrarian thought, and can you frame it in a sense of what management teams and entrepreneurs should perhaps be keeping in mind as they build their companies? This is the most complex period I've ever lived through. I wouldn't say it's the most difficult, but it's the most complex. Complex in a variety of ways. Negative real interest rates are not a force of nature. They're a construct of man. They're false, but they continue as long as confidence continues. You have to, as an issuer, focus on negative real interest rates, but you also have to focus on the fact that they're going to come to an end. 
and don't plan your life around fiction. Mm. So that's important. Markets work. And we have existed in a point in time where we have divorced ourselves from markets for a substantial period of time due to excess liquidity in the system. And if the liquidity begins to come out of the system, the confidence will come out of the system too. So beware. We are coming into a period where in extractive industries, I think we'll enjoy two bull markets. A precious metals bull market, which is underway, albeit involved in a cyclical decline in a secular bull market, for reasons that we'll discuss in a moment. And looking, I had believed further out to a broad industrial materials bull market, driven not so much by increased demand, but rather because as a society we've underinvested in mm. productive capacity and resources for three decades. And that is going to bite us. The industrial materials bull market that I thought would take three years to mature is alleged by many to be underway, the sort of reflation trade. I'm very cautious about the reflation trade because I myself believe that there is at least a possibility that we have a recession, that the economic environment that we're in is more a function of liquidity than it is global free trade, which makes everyone wealthier or increases in productivity through technology. It wouldn't surprise me then to see a hiccup in the rosy scenario that everybody sees in terms of the global economy. And if you saw a hiccup, you could see a very rapid decline in commodities prices. I'm not saying this is going to occur, but I think it's something that issuers and investors need to consider. Looking further out, I think industrial commodities do better than most people think that they're going to do, simply as a consequence of supply shortages. In capital-intensive cyclical businesses, when the price signals hit the market, which is to say prices go up, it takes the industry a very long time to respond because it takes a long time to discover a mine, to permit a mine, to finance a mine, and to build a mine. So the copper price could go from $2.50 a pound to $4 a pound, which is done, and not fashion any more supply for five years. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so these markets overshoot up and they overshoot down. As a society, we are living on the capital investments we made in extractive industries in the 1960s, 1970s, and early 1980s. And hmm. these deposits, these world-class deposits, the Gawar field in Saudi Arabia, Campeche in Mexico, Highland Valley in Copper in BC, these assets that the world lives on are extremely long of tooth. And in extractive industries, you can't get a, at a mine site and you know, throw fertilizer and water in and have a mine grow more copper. That's not the way it works. <laughs> So we have supply issues facing us, but a lot can go wrong between now and the promised land. Would you hazard a guess on timelines here? You know, my timing track record, at least in the near term, is unblemished by success over 45 years. And I wouldn't want to burden your listeners with my own misinformation. I joke <laughs> because I'm arithmetically oriented rather than narrative oriented and because I'm libertarian. I joke that I've accurately forecast 17 of the last three declines. Uh, <laughs> okay, yeah. I get it right in the long term. And you know, the truth is that if you get the if part right, the when part matters less. When you get to ask yourself a question where the answer begins with when, not if, you're asking yourself a very high quality question. Yes. In your investment strategy, and when you put money into these companies, you're taking a very long-term perspective. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, well, there are, there, there. my experience has been when I'm, you know, when I'm investing in a junior resource company, I have to believe that if things go right, I have a 10 bagger. You know, if somebody says, oh, well, the news flow is good. Who cares? Mm. You know, who cares? When I was in university, the idea that I could have a stock going from 25 cents to 75 cents and I could buy my girlfriend dinner at highs, or I could buy snow, four snow tires. That was of interest to me. You know, I've done that now. Yeah. So what I'm interested in is allocating enough capital that it can justify my time to allocate the capital. And I want to believe I can have a 10-bagger out of it. Now, it doesn't mean that I hold these things for a 10-bagger. If I have bought a stock for a reason, and I have a price target, in a bull market, often the sex associated with the narrative causes 
the price action to occur before the unanswered question has been answered. You know, I might say that on the way to a 10-bagger, my idea is that they're going to put a couple drill holes under a couple trenches that were successful. And if that happens, the stock could go from a dollar to three on its way to 10, my hope. If the stock goes from a dollar to three before they've drilled the drill hole, which is to say, if my expectation has been met before the question has been asked, I will always sell enough stock, always, hmm. that I have my cash off the table. Hmm. Similarly, if information comes back that suggests that the answer to the unanswered question is no, if I'm down by 30%, I sell the stock. If I'm down by 50%, I sell the stock. If my reason to own a stock goes away, my stock always, each and every time, goes away. Hmm. I don't bullshit myself in trying to find a new narrative that justifies hanging on to a loser. Hmm. I want to ask about working within these markets. And you mentioned news flow. Who cares? Mm -hmm. But -hmm. is news flow in investor relations and engaging your both retail and institutional audience and investor base, is that not an important aspect when it comes to financing for the future, limiting your dilution? What's your perspectives on that? I'm an investor from an IR person's job. If he or she doesn't have any reality to sell, you have to sell narrative. So I absolutely understand monetizing perception, monetizing a market's greed and larceny and ignorance. I get that. I just don't fall for it. Hmm. But do you not find it as a, it can be an important aspect of company building? Like, would you not want- Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. If I'm, as an example, if I were trying to work with somebody like Ross Beatty, and let's say that Equinox was the company at hand, I would be telling investors, I have now built or been part of building 14 companies with Ross. I've been unsuccessful once and hugely successful 13 times. And one of the things that you see with Ross Beatty isn't merely a collection of tier two mines. What you have is a human being who assembles high quality human beings around him and has a track record of success. You will also see a guy who just wrote a $40 million check himself and never to sell stock until he can sell all of his stock. That's narrative. I understand narrative, but remember that narrative will come back to bite you. Hmm. So to make a market go up, you have to spend cash or credibility. If you don't have cash, you have to spend credibility. And you have to be very careful, very judicious with that credibility. It might be something that works this week, but you're going to need it again. Six weeks from now, six months from now, and six years from now. So you better make it compound in a positive direction. You better create a constituency around yourself that you don't have to lie or exaggerate to. Yeah. As I'm looking at time here, I want to respect yours, is that now that you've stepped away from your responsibilities with Sprott, what's next for you? Uh, I kept one private client. A guy I know real well, his name is Rick Rule. Okay. And so I'll be investing his money a little more aggressively than I would have. I will still be a sub-advisor to several Sprott portfolios. I'll still be a mentor to their portfolio managers and their private wealth guys. And I'm going to do a lot more of this. I've taken the Sprott US media business. I'm rebranding at Rule Investment Media. And I'm going to build a financial educational channel. Fantastic. I really look forward to doing that. It's, I guess amusing for me. I suspect I'll make a lot of money at it. But what's probably more important is that so many mentors assisted me in my way up that I have the ability to assist younger people, indigenous people, young libertarians. 20% of the interviews I do have no hope of benefiting me financially. Therefore, as an example, student libertarian organizations in places like Congo or Rwanda it's unlikely in the balance of my career that those young people will make enough money to invest with me that it'll make any difference. But the ability through my channel to do philanthropy firsthand is a very important consumer good to me. And I'm looking forward to doing that. I'm also becoming increasingly interested in financing and causing others to finance indigenous education in natural resources in Canada and the United States. Awesome. Which is fun for me. I think it's good for the industry too. 
but I, you know, I suffer under sort of no misapprehension that I can leave it to somebody else to do. I think I have to do it. Interesting. There's a smile on your face when you say this. I can tell this lights you up. So that's really exciting. It's been fun. Yeah. It's been well, fun. What final thoughts would you have for our audience when building companies in the junior markets and yeah, with all reflection is, on our conversation here? This is real simple for young entrepreneurs and young IR people. In my life, at age 29, I stopped worrying about making money. Stopped completely worrying about making money because I came to understand that the surest way to make money is to become indispensable for others, to generate utility for others. And really within a quarter, when I stopped worrying about making money, my income doubled. It was really odd. This is going to sound very cynical, but the surest way to make money in the world is to make rich people richer. Contrary to popular opinion, rich people are extremely generous. They're rich because they like money. And if you can find a way to make them money, they love paying you for it. I had an early client who was a very wealthy guy who would insist that I charged him double commission. And I said, why would you do this? And he says, because I want the first call. Of course. So my suggestion to the younger folks is safeguard your reputation. It's more important than your fortune worry about generating utility, do something that you love doing. It was very difficult for people to compete with me in my 20s and 30s because I got up early, I stayed late, and I worked hard while I was there. I was competing against guys who wanted to buy Lamborghinis. So they were thinking about a Lamborghini. I was thinking about generating value. So while they were thinking about buying a Lamborghini, I was kicking their ass. And over decades, the advantage that you generate doing that is cumulative and compounding. So while I just beat them in my 20s, I massacred them in my 50s. <laughs> if I sound competitive, it's because I am. Brilliant. Brilliant. I really appreciate it. Rick, I'm so happy we could connect here. This has been a great interview. Thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity. and I, I hope it's been useful. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insider's Guide to Finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.